Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Now, real quick, you guys know the deal. If you get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you cry, you're informed, you're entertained, please share it with a friend. As I said, guys, this show grows super, super organically. And uh, the only way it's going to grow is through word to mouth. So if you have a like-minded friend who actually gains something from this episode, and I mean it, and if you don't gain anything, don't share it with a friend. But if you do, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with someone. That's all I ask. That's a little fee. Now, just had West Plate on the podcast, another guy in the ultra world, and just a super kind, nice guy that's just got a demon inside that you can't see, but that guy's going out to run four 200-mile ultramarathons in the next seven months. That's craziness. Super nice guy. And what I learned on the podcast is he developed an incredibly important software for filmmakers. Incredibly important. Like, very low-key, he was talking about it, and I was like, wait, that's what you made? Really important. Essentially, what he did was... You couldn't transfer a file between different softwares until he created his program, which allowed you to do it. So that guy has not only run insane races, but also made a really important software. And he's really low-key about saying it. I was like, wait, dude, that's a pretty big deal. Anyway, I really hope you guys like it. He's talked about um, how he used to be a big drinker and smoke cigarettes, got into running, just kept it going his training for the 200 milers coming up and much more. And as you know, the train will keep rolling on. I hope you guys enjoy this. Share with friend. All of daddy. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. All right, we're currently rolling, and I know you're a busy guy, so I just wanted to jump right into it. I know you said, hey, dude, I got to be out of there at 11 and start of this new job. I got a lot going on. Yeah, Fred, I do have a lot going on. Now, I would say, so I've been doing the podcast on Zoom now. We've been around doing it for like n- nearly four years, but you probably have the first treadmill Zoom setup I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... It's good to have a treadmill. You know, I don't use it very often. My girlfriend uses it more than I do, but uh, it's, you know, when you need it, it's good to have available. That's for sure. Have you ever done any sort of speed training, like a, like a fast marathon, or did you kind of just jump into ultras right away? Uh, I didn't really do too much speed stuff. When I was in high school, I, did, I was a sprinter. Uh, I ran the 400-meter dash, um, and at that time, long-distance running was something that I felt not very qualified for. I did cross country, but I was terrible at it. And so um, when I started running in about 2012, actually when I started running again, because kind of life um, prevented me from running for a long time, it seems like when I got back to running, I did run some 5Ks with the intention of you know trying to do them, I guess, kind of quick, but not really fast, fast. And then within a few years, I found ultra running. And since then, I've just, I've kind of, stayed on the longer rather than faster side of things yeah so as i was saying i just shifted out of my 100 training and i'm back i'm back into a marathon block right now doing a lot of speed work 
And dude, it's taken me probably like five or six weeks to like mentally like set myself not for long and slow, but short and fast. Yeah, that's got to be a quite a, a mental shift. What is it you're training for? There's a marathon in Idaho, actually not too far from you, called Co- the Coeur d'Alene Marathon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Are you familiar? I know the area. We used to, uh, I've driven through Coeur d'Alene many times. It's a really, really beautiful spot. I've heard. Yeah, I, um, what's the nice thing, what I've learned through my short running career thus far is like a runcation is a blast. It like gives you a good excuse to go somewhere random. Absolutely. Yeah. You really get to know a place when you, when you sort of run across the space and, uh, you know, you get to know the the land and get to know the climate in a way that you can't get to know just by driving through it. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to explore a space. I love that. Well, before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis for who, who you are and what you do for anyone who's not hip? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Wes Plate. I live in the Seattle area. Um, I've been running since 2012 and I've been running ultra marathons since 2015. Um, My background is in video production. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've been working in the video technology space, actually helping make the tools and products that video editors and video producers use. So um, I'm sort of, I guess, involved in technology now. Uh, and I just like to run ultra marathons. I discovered that is something that I really like. And that's uh, something that I do now for fun. And I also share my adventures on my YouTube channel. Um, and so that's, I believe that's how you came to know about me. So that's, that's kind of what I like to do. Let me preface for everyone who was listening to this. Before I did my 100, I was like, you know, what? I think and I was telling you this on the phone. I was like, I think I'm going to like make a video for this because who knows if I'll ever do it again. It'd be cool to show people and tell people about it. And so your videos were the one reference I used on how to create something beautifully minimalistic. That's how I would describe your videos. It's like you even with your scoring, I don't do you use like Epidemic Sound or Artlist for all your your background music. Yeah, I use, uh, I'm currently using Artlist. Uh, I have used other services in the past, but yeah, similar things. Yep. Yeah. I was just going to say like you're, uh, you score them as almost, they're like a, like a space exploration. That's like kind of how I would describe it. And um, I thought it was just a, a really accurate representation of probably how you feel when you're going through these just intense highs and intense lows. Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, you were preparing for your race and you were looking at videos. And I, when I prepared for my races, I always look at videos too. And I have a little bit of a similar story. You know, when I did my first 100, I recorded it as a document for myself, not knowing if I would ever do it again. I figured if it was an epic once in a lifetime thing, I could have a, a little film to, to show my kids or whatever. So um, I did that but then i enjoyed it so much and people gave me good feedback that they enjoyed seeing it that i decided to make more because i when i watch when i go to prepare for a race i want to watch videos and sort of understand what that race is like so uh my goal is to sort of contribute videos into that same sort of ecosystem of people looking at races maybe they'll watch my race they'll get a sense of how i felt during it and uh, i try to give as best i can just an accurate telling of of the story because before 
you know, I, I plan to record the race and you know, I bring my camera, but I really have no idea what's going to happen during the race. So yeah. I just sort of capture it as it unfolds. And then uh, later on in the editing room, try to make a story out of it, try to have it make sense and put some music to it that sort of also gives the vibe. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you have appreciated it so much because I, I do put a lot of work into it and it's a lot of fun for me, but I also really appreciate when people, you know, enjoy watching it. So I'm glad you do. Well, it's such a, I mean, as you know, ultra running is such a, it's been around for, I don't know, at least somewhat popular for like 30 or 40 years, but the, in, the advent of YouTube has provided such a good window into like, the vast amount of characters that are actually in the sport and going out and doing these races. And so, I mean, I probably would have never even started doing ultras if there was no YouTube. Now that I think about it, like, no, really, honestly, I mean, how yeah. else would we get footage of it? Yeah. I mean, when I started running my ultras, I don't think YouTube was a very big part of my life. So, I mean, I, when I ran my first ultra, a 50 K in October of 2015, um, where was that? Uh, it was called the Baker Lake 50K up here in Washington State, uh, north of here. Um, it's a nice out and back. And, you know, my studying for that was did not include videos. There were no videos for me to watch of that. And so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that the uh, expansion of YouTube in the last few years and the explosion of ultra running content there uh, has provided a lot of stuff. I, I watch a lot of YouTube now and I really enjoy watching other people's running adventures and, um, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. Well, let's peel it way back. So did you grow up in Washington? And I mean, I listened to another podcast you were on. So you grew up like a semi-athlete, but never like the best in your class. Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in Washington state. And, um, like I said, I was a sprinter in high school. Uh, I tried to stay active into college, but, um, the more I, the more beer I enjoyed in college, the less running I enjoyed. And so, uh, that balance eventually tipped to where I wasn't running at all. I got heavy and it was, there was times when I was like, I really would like to get back into shape again, but my physical body was so out of shape. And so big that I just kind of I kept failing at my attempts to to do that. Um, in 2007 into 2008, I um, I stopped drinking, and that led me to losing a whole bunch of weight. And then finally, by 2012, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try running again because by that point, I had lost about 70 pounds from my heaviest. And so it was a lot easier for me to move and a lot easier for me to get into running again. So I started just to run little bits. Um, and then, yeah, eventually, you know, like I said, eventually I ran an ultra, but that took a few years for me to get to that point. But I, I kind of was always active as a kid. Um, it was just later on in life that I sort of lost that, but I regained it and uh, I've been running ever, I guess now almost, I got, oh shoot, that's been 10 years since I started running. I can't believe how much time has passed. Wow. So if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? Now I'm now 48 years old. So your first ultra, you were 38. My first ultra, actually, I was, um, I think actually, no, I was 42 when I ran my first ultra, it, but, but I was 38 when I started running again. So I kind so of, I came back maybe. around to this late. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, have you seen a growth in your performance over the last six years running ultras? Have you become better? 
or is there a point of diminishing returns? I was as I was saying, I had Andrew Glaze on too. I was just like, it's so amazing that guys like in their forties and fifties really start hitting their stride with the sport. Yeah, this is definitely sort of a a sport that is uh, great for old people like me, I guess. Um, I mean, it's it's a tough question about if if I'm sort of you know coming into my own. I guess in a way I am. I have completed two two hundred plus mile runs now. I've done several one hundreds. My schedule seems to be getting thicker and and bigger each year as I just take on more and more. I'm not necessarily trying to run them any faster. So my goal isn't to get my speed really fast or, you know, to do age group wins or anything like that. My goal is, is to finish comfortably, to have fun while doing it, document the journey, meet friends along the way. And so, um, and then just, and then just keep on building just more things. So this year I have planned to do four 200 mile races. Yeah. That's absolutely Uh, sickening. Yeah. So, you know, they'll, they won't be fast, but, um, for me, the goal will be just to complete them all and uh and hopefully not be too wrecked along the way and i think that what i have done over the years is just gain more confidence in myself and uh in knowing what the sport requires of me and so that i can you know train smart i can go into the events with you know knowing what what's expected of me i guess and you know that confidence goes a long way especially in long long events where there's just so many unknowns um that's what I think the experience has sort of given me is just knowing that it's going to be really hard, but I'll, I'll probably finish, or at least I will have, uh, I'll have a lot of experiences to draw upon. Now, what moment for you can you reflect on in your ultra career where you felt the most naive, where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, well, in my ultra career, it probably was my very first ultra so my first ultra was this 50k the baker lake 50k and at that point um i had done a bunch of training i thought i was doing smart things i'd even done a training run on the course so i had a pretty good sense of what i was getting myself into i thought Uh, but when i that particular race had an aid station about halfway through so it's an out and back went down turned around the aid station and as, as, as i was at the aid station my legs started cramping up pretty badly and the uh aid station volunteers were like okay well how's your salt intake been you know in the first half of the race and i was sort of like what do you mean salt intake i've been drinking all kinds of water and they're like yeah yeah but you know how about your electrolytes and so i realized at that point that i had no idea what they were talking about i realized i had no idea what i was doing so they gave me a whole bunch of salt pills that i was you know taking on the second half of the race trying to get my cramping under control so i at that point, I realized, oh, I've got some stuff to learn. Like, there's more to this than just running. It's not, it's not uh, a physical game, as or it's a physical game, but it's also a mental game, as you know. But then there's also just having to do the right things. You know, have the right gear, use the right products, or know about replacing your electrolytes. So, um, at the very beginning, I just, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was, I think that's probably when I was the most naive, which makes sense. So, um, but yeah, I've learned a lot about that now. And now, now it's a matter of just trying to find the right amount of electrolytes. Sometimes I take too much. Sometimes I, sometimes I'm on the edge, but you know, it's just, um, it's always learning. There's always learning to be done. Well, I almost, I also mean like when you, uh, 
when you did Cocodona, the Cocodona 250, was there ever a moment where you're like, wow, there is no way I could have mentally prepared for this or the Moab? I mean, dude, like you really, at least in the video, it seemed, I'm sure what was going through your head was much different. In the Moab 240, you like really deteriorated in that video, <laughs> but you pulled it off. It was awesome. Yeah, um, I... I do remember a conversation with one of my pacers during Moab about how it was so much more difficult than I had ever expected. And um, not that it necessarily changed my, would have changed my plans. I probably still would have gone through with it, but it's, there's, there are times where you're just like, oh, wow, I, I knew this was going to be hard, but I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And there's the only way you can experience that is to go through it. And so my plan is to do Cocodona again in two months. And, you know, I have a good sense of how hard it was the first time. I've my brain has probably blocked out a lot of that pain. So uh, I'll be re, you know, reengaging with those experiences again. But um, yeah, I'd, it's it's kind of hard to know, right? Because you don't know what something's going to be like until you're in the middle of it. And you can prepare and prepare and prepare. But there's some aspect of it that you just can't know until it's happening. Cocodona was a great example of, I had studied the course like crazy. I had watched, uh, I created animations in Google Earth to really get a visual 3D view of what it was like. I had a map on my wall that I looked at for months and months. And I really had, I felt like I had a pretty good sense of what was going on. Um, but yet I can remember around mile 100 when we were walking across Fane Ranch, this giant, wasteland it seems like of of flat in the exposed sun hot as hell and uh it was just like oh well this it's it's not hard but man this is just like i, I don't i couldn't have prepared for this exact experience that i'm having at this moment um yeah i don't know it's i just i just do everything i can to uh train on hills because i know that's important uh train on flats i know that that's important get some heat training in that's important and then you know fueling and hydration along the way just trying to make sure that i'm ready for any eventuality because the thing about any ultra is you go in with a plan and that plan deteriorates pretty quick and that's expected and so it's just a matter of then adjusting and figuring out what you're going to do instead and and coming up with new plans that you can go on until those plans fall apart yeah. so it's all about adjusting now you said something interesting. You said, um, like in your daily life as in film and in editing, do you have ways where you can actually signal the trauma you've been through in the ultra? Or is it only when you're running again, where you can kind of revisit those moments? Like I have heart, a hard time kind of revisiting some of my races until I'm actually out running and in a pretty bad spot. Do you feel the same way? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that the various traumas or difficulties that I've experienced on the trail don't necessarily follow me home. They seem to stay out there. I mean, I, I'll watch video of me vomiting, you know, on the side of the trail or uh, see those videos of me where, like you say, at Moab, where I was just a complete wreck. And and I can kind of remember what that was like in the moment. But at the same time, it's. I can't really access what those feelings were. Um, so I, you know, I know that when I return to Moab later this year, I, you know, I'll be interested to know, well, I have the same breathing problems that I had in 2019. Um, similarly, I think I had, uh, I had paced somebody in 2019 at Tahoe and we had gone to some very high elevations and I had some breathing problems there too. 
but I can't, I really don't remember specifically what those feelings were. I can't really access them. Like you say, uh, I'll just have to get back out there and get back into that shit again and see, you know, how I react, see how it goes. Now, how do you separate in your brain? Like I found it to be just for me, at least in my early ultra career, like running my first hundred had to be all consuming and all obsessive. Like I just, I couldn't turn that switch off when I was training. Do you have a better time managing it now that you're a little deeper into the process or are you, do you still have a hard time thinking like, Oh shit, I have four 200 mile races coming up. Um, well, that's, I mean, I'm still very focused on my training. I, I am running five days a week, uh, depending on the schedule. Sometimes there might be, might be four days a week with travels involved, but generally I'm always running five days a week. And it's one of my top priorities to get my training done no matter what. So, um, I'm always thinking about making sure that I'm ready for the next event. I may be, I think one thing that I've done allowed myself less of, or given myself a little bit of a break on is totally obsessing about the event ahead of time. So uh, I've done a couple races, some of my most recent races, like um, the Bandera 100K and the Rio del Lago 100 miler. Um, those were in January and November, respectively. I really didn't plan very well mentally for those particular races. I just had a lot going on. And so uh, I didn't feel as mentally prepared. Like I didn't know the course, like the back of my hand like I wanted to. And so it was much more of a sort of like winging it in a way while knowing that I was physically fit and physically ready for whatever it was going to be. I wasn't necessarily um, as mentally prepared. So I think that that's something that's been a little bit adjustment for me is that I'm not totally obsessed with every single detail. Um, but that's just, that's something that uh, I, I obsess partly because it's, so I think it helps make a better experience, but also I just enjoy it. I enjoy studying maps and I enjoy all of the research that goes into a race. And unfortunately, sometimes I get busy and I have a new job now. So, you know, sometimes I just don't have as much time for that. Um, but it's so far it's working out. I think for me, as long as I can continue training and make sure that I'm physically fit for the thing, you know, if some unexpected hill confronts me during a race, I know. Okay. I can, I can handle this hill. <laughs> I may not know when the hill's going to end, but at least, at least I can tackle it. So. Yeah. Okay. Word. Now you, um, so in your early twenties, you developed uh, software, correct? Automatic duck. That's right. Yep. Now listen, I'm a long time consumer and user of final cut pro been doing it since I think, I think I got final cut 10 one was the first one I got. Okay. Uh, I don't know what they're at now, but how did you develop that? And can you just kind of explain what you developed in the early yeah. stages of your career? When I was starting out my career, so this is a long time ago. So in the mid nineties, I was editing TV commercials in the Seattle area and I was using um, some software called Avid Media Composer as my editing system. A, at the time was the leading um editing software. It ran on the Mac. It was like $100,000. It was pretty high end. And I uh, was doing I was doing work that was fairly complicated, heavy effects heavy. And so I um, was often using some software from Adobe called After Effects, which is 
one way to think about it, it's like Photoshop, but for video, where you can layer videos on top of each other. You can do a lot of interesting animation and um, special effects, green screen, all kinds of things in it. But I was using these two programs together, Avid Media Composer and After Effects, but they were made by different manufacturers and the two programs didn't know how to talk to each other. So I would have to do all, I did a bunch of my work in program A, and then I would go to program B and essentially just redo all my work. And the reason why I was doing it was because the advertising agency clients that I was working with would see like a really rough green screen. I was doing a chroma key for whatever effect I was doing and it was rough. But the phase of the process we were in, it didn't need to be a good green screen. It just needed to represent the intention that we were going to then redo in a much more expensive room later, later on in the process. So I was doing a bunch of work in After Effects just so that I could get the advertising agency people to stop worrying about the low quality chroma key. Anyways, the, the whole point is I was doing a lot of work, spending hours and hours rebuilding work. Uh, that I knew if program B, if After Effects knew how to read a file that program A, Media Composer wrote, there could be a bridge between these two these two worlds. So uh, sorry, my dad is a software engineer. Off. Yeah, sorry to I was. I don't mean to, but I mean that would just be an OMF file, correct? <laughs> it would be an OMF file, but believe it or not, Av After Effects did not know how to read an OMF file. So Avid wrote this OMF file and OMF stood for um, Open Media Framework Interchange, OMFI. And it was, a it was a file that contained all the edit decisions and it either contained the media or it contained references to the media. But that OMF file essentially was what I wanted to be able to read inside of After Effects. So the company that we created made a product that would read the OMF file from the Avid and then rebuild all of those decisions in After Effects. So it took something that would take me about three hours to do normally. That process was reduced to about five seconds um, using our software. Okay, now, but now that's standard practice for Adobe and Final Cut, they already have that built in. So did you sell that, did you sell that to Adobe? We ended up licensing uh, our work to Adobe in 2011. So uh, we did our company for 10 years and then we licensed it to Adobe and I went to work at Adobe for two years and so did my dad. Uh, they integrated some of our some of our tools into the product. So today After Effects has built in uh, the plugin that we created that helps you import an XML file from uh, Final Cut Pro in uh, or AAF file from Avid. Although I think that that version is the old, it imports the XML from the older version of Final Cut. So if you have Final Cut Pro 10, uh, there's a way to do that, but that plugin is a is sold by Automatic Duck. So Automatic Duck makes a separate plugin to bring in Final Cut 10 XML. Um, so yeah, the, the we had always hoped that our the work that our company was doing would eventually sort of need to go away because we just went and wanted all these products to just to work with each other. We, why should a third party have to get involved? Um, but you know, even today, while there are some ways for free to get in between these programs, uh, it's not always robust. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of data sometimes gets left behind when you transfer between programs. But yeah, in, in 1997, 99, whenever it was that I was having this problem myself, there was no way to do these things. So we sort of helped open those doors and um, I think made it expected. And these days, I think a lot of people are benefiting from that experience. Okay, let me just clarify for everyone listening, because this is going to sound like complete lunatic jargon. So essentially, what Wes did is, if you want to 
let's say I make a movie on my computer using one software, and then we want to send the movie to someone else to work on it, but they're using a different software. When I sent it off before he started his company, the other person couldn't read it, person two. But now, because of his software, person two can read it and can work on it. Now, I want to peel it back. So as I said, I just made a feature film in Boston that we put in theaters and got picked up by a couple of streaming services. So is your software is like the guts of your software also used by Pro Tools? Uh, no, Pro Tools has its own ability to read OMF and, or AAF files. Um, we did some work at some point in the past to get um, OMF out of Final Cut Pro to go to Pro Tools. So it, it used to be that you there, there was a there was more difficulties in the Final Cut to Pro Tools workflow. Um, but we we had to fix that on the Final Cut Pro side. So none of none of our work lives inside of Pro Tools because Pro Tools already has what it needs to sort of read those files. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot of different formats for interchanging. There's XML is quite popular. Final Cut Pro 10 it can read and write XML, but it's a different flavor of XML than Premiere Pro can read and write, for example. Um, so there's still today even a bit of a, a challenge sometimes getting interchange, but it's uh, it's like I said, it's expected now. People are doing this sort of thing all the time. When they collaborate with each other, they need to be able to get work between programs. And so with, with OMF or AAF or XML, um, yeah, it's all possible. And what's fun, you know, part of the reason why I use, I like to make videos for my YouTube channel is because it gives me an excuse to make some films and, and practice the workflows and experience what it's like to use the tools that our customers are using. So um, I... I'm often making XML files from Final Cut Pro and opening them up in After Effects to do a thing, uh, using you know, automatic duck software to do that. And uh, and also whenever there's lots of different things in my videos that are fairly complicated on a technical level. And so I'm sort of always practicing new things to see if I could figure out a way to make things easier. Sometimes my dad helps me out with some custom software to make something easier. Um, but it's always sort of research projects for me as well as making something fun for the channel. I had no idea I was talking to a super genius, man. I just thought you were a <laughs> lunatic runner. Wow. Dude, I mean, you yeah. have saved people so much time. Yeah, I I mean, I, I'm not sure I I would call myself any kind of super genius. To me, I'm, I guess I'm lucky that my brain sort of thinks about things in a way that has allowed me to enter a world where I'm one of the people helping build tools like this. Um, to me, it's just kind of, I don't know, I just think this way, but I, I really enjoy the tool. I love making films. I love being creative, but I also like the technology that makes it possible. And there's so much opportunity for that technology to help make the process easier too. So, um, you know, well, the next step for Adobe is we got to figure out how to allow Adobe to cut down these massive renders and the program not blow up every time we try to kick out huge effects because oh, yeah. I feel the like the program crashes one every five times we kick out a big render. Yeah, I've, I've heard that sort of thing a lot from people. And I've had a lot of crashes myself. But yeah, it's it's we're asking a lot of computers these days. That's for sure. Pumping out 4K60 or whatever of, you know, lots of layers of footage. It's yeah, it's it's complicated. It must be really weird for you if you started in post-production in the 90s to see how 
it's shifted from those massive post-production rooms with hundreds of thousand dollars worth of software to kids just doing it on their laptop and even phone and oh, creating yeah. real high quality effects. Yeah, it's, it blows my mind um, what people are able to do today with the phone that they have in their pocket. It's so much more powerful than what I was working on 20, 30 years ago. Um, and I, it's, yeah, it's really fun to help make all that possible for people because it's computing power is available everywhere. Everybody has a phone in their pocket. There's no reason why anybody who's interested can't make a film at this very moment because you have all the tools you need right in front of you. And so, yeah, it's quite a paradigm shift and it's exciting to have been a part of it. Um, I'm not sure where things are going to go. I mean, obviously things just continue to improve and get bigger and, and more complicated. Um, but you know, it's also a good place for me to be working too, because I get to sort of help guide, um, you know, workflows and, and sort of solve these problems. But yeah, it's, it's crazy how much things have changed. I feel like a real old man when I talk about how things used to be, um, and how they compared to how they are now. Yeah. You got to think about it when you were even I mean, in your earliest years, they weren't even editing stuff digitally. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm lucky that I uh, at least never, I never cut film. Um, I, when I started editing, I was editing on videotape. So I used to actually edit, shoot on VHS cassettes. And then I had access to a VHS editing system, which was essentially wow. selectively, selectively copying from a playback deck onto a record deck uh, in linear order. And uh, when I finally had access to it wasn't until when I was in college, my senior year, that I first had my my first introduction to 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 computer editing, what they call nonlinear editors today, and uh, that was pretty exciting and just mind blowing what was possible then. And of course, it's just gone so much further than that now. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a big ecosystem of post production houses out where you are in Washington and Vancouver, correct? Yeah, uh, Vancouver especially is a huge production hub. Seattle used to be um, more so, um, would be just just due to taxes and uh, incentives that Vancouver does for productions. A lot of stuff has moved up there, um, but yeah, there's there definitely is a lot of things shot and and then edited up in this region. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so just peeling it back to your ultra running, so. You must have been super, and I always say this word wrong, super sedentary or sedentary in your early years as an editor, if you were all in on creating your software, I'm assuming you were doing a lot of sitting at a desk. Is that kind of when you started getting out of shape? Uh, I mean, that didn't help. I was probably already on my way to being out of shape before that. But yeah, sitting down at a computer editing all day um, wasn't good for my health. Uh, I also consumed a lot of calories after work when I'd go out drinking with my with my clients or with my work colleagues. And so, um, yeah, just consuming lots of alcohol, lots of calories and then sitting all day, all that stuff sort of contributed to to uh, yeah, to me being out of shape and gaining weight and getting heavy and big and out of, and unhealthy. Yeah. And then. I mean, it was even tough to take breaks, you know, when I, when you have advertising agency clients paying a lot of money to be working in the room with you, you know, there was, you, it wasn't really acceptable to be like, Hey, you know, I'm just, I just need to have a little bit of a break. I just need to step out for 10 minutes or whatever. Like that just didn't happen. So at that time, the only way that I could get a real break and have it be acceptable was to go out and smoke cigarettes. So I would have, go have a cigarette break. And, um, that also wasn't contributing to my health. So, um, uh, eventually I stopped smoking as well, but, uh, yeah, I, I was not leading a healthy life and it wasn't until I was able to sort of lose some of that weight, 
uh, when I stopped drinking that it, I felt like I could truly get back into health again. And that's when running felt possible. It wasn't easy. I mean, when I first started running, I would just, um, I would walk to a telephone pole, you know, I would just uh, telephone poles were my measurements. I would walk mm -hmm. a telephone pole and then I would run to the next telephone pole and I would alternate walking and running those telephone poles. And then eventually I would run the distance of two telephone poles and then walk a telephone pole and just, I just kept increasing the interval that I was actually running. And so when I got to the point that I could run like two miles straight without having to really, you know, walk that much, that felt like quite an achievement. And it took me some time to get there. Um, but, you know, it also, I also, it also makes me think that, you know, any it, people who say they can't run, you know, maybe they have some extenuating circumstances about some injury or something that makes it difficult for them. But anybody, if they want to get moving and put, you know, get active, it is certainly possible. It's just, you can't expect to run a marathon tomorrow. Things take time. So for me, it took a long time to get from zero to two miles. And that's just, I was patient. I wasn't in, in a rush and, uh, you know, your body adapts and things get easier. So it worked for me. Yeah. So I, I did my first run in, I always hated it. I did my first run in June of 2020, maybe. No. Okay. Like wow. adult running. And um, yeah. I, and it was just a great lesson in creating habits because I really hated it. And I was just like, you know, if I just thug it out for like five weeks knowing I'm going to hate this, I, there's got to be another side to this that people like, cause I see all these dudes looking like Achilles running down the Charles river here, like having the time of their life, like people enjoy this. And so that's what happened. And I think the hardest thing about starting out too, is physically your body's just not used to the impact. So you're going to catch little injuries here and there that can mm -hmm. be super, super, um, what's the word I'm going for? Super, uh, inhibitive. Okay. I'm trying to sound too smart. Whatever, you know what I mean, man. <laughs> I know what you, yeah, absolutely. If, if when you're starting out, you're going to be putting your body under stress that's not accustomed to. And so, yeah, you're, you are prone to having little niggles that could easily become injuries. And so listening to the body is super important. I actually got injured about um, six years ago. I had just finished, just after I finished my first ultra, I was pretty excited and motivated to, um, to go further. And so, uh, within a month after my first ultra, I had signed up for my first 100 miler that was going to be oh. four, like four months later. So I was going to go from 50 K to hundred miles within six months. And so, um, at the time I was like, okay, well I need, I need to get ready for this. And so I was training seven days a week. I was running all the time. And he, he, I had a friend who even said, you know, you need to do some rest days. And I was like, rest days, who's got time for that? I got this hundred miler coming up in a few months. And uh, of course I ended up getting injured because I was just putting way too much strain on my body. It wasn't ready for that. And uh, hurt my ankle to the point where I really wasn't able to run for almost six months after that because it was so, so badly damaged. Oh. So that was a big learning experience for me, you know, that rest days are incredibly important. It's a really, it's important for your body to be strained so that it can have that, uh, have the thing that it needs to adapt to, but then it needs that rest time. So it can do that adaptation. And so I, that was a, a big learning for me. And I'm only just now feeling like my ankle is starting to improve. I mean, it's, it's been improving for the last six years, but I'm starting to see sort of the results of that improvement. Like I can finally run without orthotics after a long time. Wow. Um, and so it's, 
the it's important for anybody who's getting started to be patient and to listen to the body. And if something hurts, you know, that's something to listen to. Now, there's a difference, of course, between just an ouchie and an actual injury. Um, but, you know, I think anybody who's just getting started should probably err on the side of, OK, I ran a little bit. Let me now rest, take a day off and then we can come back to it again because um, there really shouldn't be a massive rush. Uh, the rush leads to injury. I think that's also a good segue for you to kind of describe your relationship with pain because correct me if I'm wrong, but you've described that you like drinking a lot. I'm assuming how most people who used to be alcoholics, they, that's how they say they like, I used to like drinking. I got a bunch of people who used to be alcoholics in my family, um, not used to be, are currently. And so I'm assuming you probably really like drinking and then you were like, fuck, you probably hit rock bottom. And then you felt like, oh, shit, I have a little bit of mania in me and I need to channel it into some other way. Is that kind of what happened with you or am I totally just being judgmental? Uh, there, there are elements of truth in there. I mean, I certainly did. Um, I ended up having a rock bottom moment, which is what helped shake me out of of my alcohol problem. But I think the the broader picture is that I am quite an addictive, obsessive personality type. I don't do anything sort of half ass. So anything, whether it be you know, a project or a job or a run or a video that I'm making, like everything I do, I put my all into it and try to do it at like professional level. So I was a professional level drinker. Um, and when I got into running, it didn't take me long before uh, when when ultra sort of became something that I saw on my horizon and that I saw was like my destiny, I became quite obsessed with that and learning everything I could about the sport, learning about the various events, learning about the personalities of the runners who run these events. And so I've taken that obsessive, uh, addictive personality that has always led me to strive really hard and, and sort of do things to that, you know, all the way level. Uh, now I sort of, yeah, channel that into my running. And I think that's why I think there's a lot of us ultra runners who have that sort of background. A lot of us are ex addicts of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that it, I think that that personality type does lend itself well to ultras just because of the, what it takes to train for them and then what it takes to push through when things are difficult. And when you're running a 200 miler and you're, you know, in day two, and you still have two or more days ahead of you. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to appreciate the level of commitment that it takes to do that. Um, you know, when you're just starting out running. You know, me starting running five Ks, you know, in 2013 or whatever. Uh, that person could never imagine the running that I'd be doing now. Uh, so it's it's been a bit of a journey for me and an evolution. But I think my like my point is just that, that that obsession is something that I'm good at. I think that lends itself to to my training and success in the sport. Yeah. And I also think there's a, a piece of addiction between substance addiction and then also channeling into ultras. Like you have to kind of enjoy the monotony because I'm, there's a lot of that with addiction as well. And so I agree. It's like a good mirror. It's just like a lot of people in the sport have found an outlet that's like, okay, I mean, I can, I can channel the addictive behavior in a healthy way. Yeah. Or yeah. semi, semi healthy, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say that while ultras are, um, 
you know, they, they can give you some injuries along the way. I think that I'm, my, I'm in a lot better shape now and I'm a lot healthier and my outlook uh, on long-term life is probably a lot better now than when I was drinking. So uh, yeah, I, I love, I love ultra running and I, I think that it's probably a pretty healthy choice for me. Have you ever gotten rhabdo? I got it after my race. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember I listened to, uh, I watched your video and I read and I listened to the podcast afterwards. So I heard about your experience. It sounded terrible. And I am grateful and thankful to say that, no, I've not had any challenges like that. While I had that experience in my first ultra where I did not hydrate enough and I ran out of electrolytes, you know, by drinking too much, just plain water. Um, that was enough of an education for me where ever since then I've been really careful about my hydration and staying, um, you know, making sure I'm getting plenty of liquids in, but yeah, thankfully I've not had that problem. I'm sorry to hear that you did. That sounded terrible. Um, I just think it kind of sounds cool to be honest with you. Like, yeah, I got rhabdo. (laughs) All it really was is like, I had to just keep an IV on me for a little bit. And truthfully, my pee still smells a little weird, but I feel okay, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's certainly dangerous and illustrates how, you know, in desert conditions that you just can't mess around with, with replacing the water in your body. Um, What was so interesting in the hospital, the nurse said, um, we've never gotten someone here after an endurance event, but we get a lot of patients with rhabdo who travel the desert. And I'm like, what do you mean travel the desert? Like, this isn't Star Wars. What are we talking about? She goes, well, like people who travel the desert, which she was alluding to were immigrants coming across the Mexican border into Arizona. Oh. A lot of them get rhabdo through like a, f- a five, six day journey through the desert. Yeah, I can imagine. But one of the one of the challenges about being in the desert is that you don't necessarily know you're sweating because your sweat can evaporate more quickly than um, than like your, your your clothes don't get wet like they might in some other situations. So you may not be as aware of how much water you've lost. Um, in, when I ran Cocodona last year, there was a big concern about the first thirty five mile section that was going to require us to carry a lot of water and there was there was actually an aid station at mile 11 and the next aid station i think wasn't until 34 or 35 but so there was like this 24 ish 23 mile section in the middle where there was no water and they had warned us ahead of time they make sure you bring at least three liters for that section so when you leave that aid station at mile 11 you need to have at least you know three liters and i was thinking about how much time is it going to take me to do that 20 something mile section how many hours does that equate to you know doing some math like well in ideal situation i would be having a liter or a half a liter of water per hour based on how how i operate and i came to the conclusion that i probably would need more than three liters in fact uh jameel curry who runs our viper running he had talked about he was going to run the race and he was going to bring four liters of water for that one section and i figured that if if Jamil, who's a much better runner than I am, who also lives in Phoenix, if he's going to bring, you know, four liters of water, then I'm going to bring even more than that. Cause I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I'm not used to the heat. And like I said, I'm just not to his, his caliber. So, um, I ended up carrying six liters of water when I left wow. mile 11 for that section. And boy, I'm so glad that I did. I was able to share a half a liter of water with another runner who had run out and I was passing runners left and right who were sitting down and just struggling. Um, a lot of people ended up having to drop after that section because they had run out of fluid. They didn't have any. Uh, so 
I was really I grateful that. that I had been able to bring so much with me and it, it really saved me. Yeah. I'd seen that in the documentary. No one like, I'm sure you've seen it. This woman and the man gets to that aid station around the 50 K mark and they just start housing water because yeah. they had no idea the first 50 K was going to be so brutal. Now in that 20 mile section where you bring six liters, the elevation gain was really severe, right? It was, we, we gained, somebody said 10,000 feet, but I don't think that was right, but it might've been like 8,000 feet of climbing in that first 50 K. I mean, there was a lot of climbing and it was all exposed and it was hot because we were, you know, down close to the Phoenix in that part of the race. So, uh, it was perfect storm, man. Cause it was just, yeah, hot, exposed, lots of climbing, super dry, no water sources. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough, but you loved it. Yeah, I guess I did. Love it. I mean, yeah, I loved it. Uh, I got to see some really cool stuff. I saw a Gila monster during that section. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a challenge. I pushed through, you know, it's like, oh, look at you just every time, every time you come over a climb, you'd see just another climb. It's like, oh, uh, but yeah, I at the same time, I was having the time of my life and uh, suffering and enjoying some simultaneously. Can you clarify what a Gila monster is, please? I absolutely, well, it's a like a lizard. It's a big lizard that um, kind of has a really bumpy skin. Um, they have, I don't, I don't, I think they can get fairly large, but the one I saw was maybe, maybe his body was about a foot or so long. He has a tail, I don't know. If you, in my Cocodona video, there's a one moment where I pass by this little, this little guy and, uh, yeah, it was just kind of a neat deserty. I don't know. I'd never seen a Gila monster, I think, in real life before. I don't know. It just felt kind of special to see something like that out in the wild. Are we talking like Komodo dragon size or smaller? Probably smaller than that, but um, maybe even smaller than a Chihuahua, but not much smaller than a Chihuahua. It was, uh, but it was a fairly good sized lizard, maybe like a, a big iguana size. I'd ask yeah. Andrew Glaze the same question. I was like, dude. When I was out in the Estrella Mountain National Park, I would have been easy pickings for a damn coyote out there. How do you guys not get nervous running in the night? Because like you are as vulnerable physically and defensively as you could be. Have, like, have you ever had a run in with a creature at night? Um, I have seen eyes in the distance looking back at me and I have no idea what Harry. kind of animal that is. And that, that is a bit, you know, a bit nerve making or nerve wracking, nervous making. Um, I haven't had any sort of real, uh, encounter except I think the worst that I've had is with owls. I've been attacked by owls about six or seven times total. Uh, one time I actually pierced the skin on the top of my head. Um, <laughs> But I've never heard that uh, before, really. Yeah, wow. there's some pretty aggressive owls around here if you get in their territory. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just to me, people have have mentioned before, like being worried about wild wildlife out there. Um it's just there are wildlife out there and they're probably not interested in me. And so um yeah, I just go and run through the night. And if I see eyes looking back at me, I just sort of make sure that they're not, you know, maybe look back once in a while and make sure they're not following me because there's some animals you don't want to be following you or you don't want to run away from. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, there was a time during Havelina hundred when, um, what about that? 
I've, I've, I've had the luck of never seeing a rattlesnake. So uh, I know that there a lot of people run into them, but so far I've not seen one. So yeah, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that I will stay safe from them too. Yeah. Now, let's just peel it. I know, I know we got to wrap up here soon. Can you just explain your running schedule, what it is you're doing in the next six months and what the, I believe on the phone you called it, the triple crown two hundreds. Yeah. Can you just explain that what that is, please? Sure. Um, well the, so there is a, there's a company called destination trail that was, uh, has made some of the, some really popular 200 mile races here in the U S um, they do the Bigfoot 200 Tahoe 200 and the Moab 240. So, um, I ran the Moab 240 back in October of 2019 and so they're individual races, but they also have an option where you can sign up to run all three of them in the same year. And if you do that, it's called the Triple Crown of, th- of 200s. And so I'm going to be running the Triple Crown this year because I've signed up to do all three, Bigfoot, Tahoe and Moab. Um, but that but before that, I'm going to run Cocodona 250 in May. And leading up to that, I have got a couple good training runs lined up this weekend. I'm going to be running a 68 mile trail down in Southern California. Um, about three weeks after that, I'm going to run hundred K the gorge waterfalls, 100 K in Oregon. And those are fairly significantly long runs, but I'm treating them just as training runs. Even the race just as something not to be going too hard at, but just, you know, getting my body again, used to, you know, many hours of being on my feet. So yeah, May 2nd, I'll do Cocodona 250. Um, and then assuming that, and hoping that everything goes well with that a month later, I will start, um, the Tahoe 200. And then two months after that is Bigfoot 200. And two months after that is Moab 240. So, um, yeah, is it's going to be quite a big year. A point of diminishing returns with a 68 mile run, or does that help you? Uh, I mean, it helps me practice. I use them also just for practicing of my gear. So, you know, I'll be carrying extra water. I'll be carrying my poles with me going into this as a way of getting my body used to carrying a a heavy pack for maybe 18 or 19 hours. Um, and so there is definitely benefit to it. So also I'll be starting the run at about one 30 in the morning and finishing it the next night. So it's also just some practice, you know, running through the darkness. Um, I mean, it's always good to practice and it's always good to train. And so it, for me, I started, I sort of train for specific outcomes or specific things that I need that I really want to practice. So, uh, you know, time on feet is probably one of the most important aspects of my training. So that's what I'll be spending a lot of time on working through nutrition and hydration and making sure that everything is, is on point, making sure that I'm you know ready to go for May when Cocodona happens again. Now, have you thought of doing the Badwater 135? Um, I have thought about it. It's one of those things that I haven't thought about. I didn't think about it very much before, but I've had friends now run it and it scares the heck out of me. And so I think that that's a good sign that I should probably do it. So uh, I don't have any immediate plans to try to get into that race, but it does seem intriguing to me and it looks really hard. And, uh, and so I've inspired by my friends who have, you know, have gone into that event. So yeah, it's not far fetched. I might actually do it. I had Chris Kostman, the director on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's a sick bastard. 
Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's got quite a story. Wow, I was really impressed with that interview with him. I did not realize what a history he had in endurance cycling and all that stuff. Yeah, he's, he sounds cool. Dude, I didn't either. And he was talking about doing the triple Ironman on no training. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? Uh, the yeah. When you're when you're young and stupid, you just do things. <laughs> no, he said it was it was the best time of my life, man. Yeah, eighty hour it's event, amazing. All right, man. Well, hey, I know we got to wrap up now, but I really appreciate this, man. I had a great time. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I enjoy sharing my experiences. Um, you know, I'm just I'm not an elite runner. I'm just sort of a normal guy who just works really hard and. Uh, yeah, juggling all this stuff, juggling being a parent, juggling being an employee, juggling being a runner, uh, being a partner to somebody else. There's just a lot to do in life and it's tough to juggle it all. Yeah, maybe I'm a little bit of a filmmaker. It's tough to do it all, uh, but, you know, maybe, um, you know, I don't know, people, people seem to enjoy what I'm doing and following along. And so I just, I'm happy to share it. It gives me, it really inspires me to make this stuff and share my experiences. Your videos have provided me with lots of value, man. And I think you should keep doing them. Are you going to do one for every one of the 200s? That's the current plan. I will, uh, I'll bring the camera out there and ca and hopefully capture something. We'll see what happens. But yeah, we'll, I, I hope to keep making stuff. That's the plan. All right, sweet. I'm going to watch them all, man. I appreciate you okay. doing this. And, uh, right. when we get off the uh, zoom here, I'll get your address and I'll ship you out a t-shirt. All right. All right. All right. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk All to right, you, brother. Best of luck, man. Thanks.